Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to A New Criminal Case. The story we are going to recount today is from Queensland, Northern Australia. Dating back to August 17, 1980, the Chamberlain family, consisting of parents Lindy and Michael Chamberlain, their two boys, Aidan and Reagan, and a two-month-old girl, Azaria, were on a camping trip in the desert of Uluru, overlooking Ayers Rock, a majestic oak or sandstone mountain. While at their campsite, the Chamberlain family quickly became acquainted with other fellow vacationers. The place was very remote and wild. Everything seems to be going well despite the soaring temperatures during the day, which was duly compensated by the long, cool and pleasant nights. However, at the end of the second night, their outing turned into a nightmare. Baby Azaria, whom her mother had just put down to sleep in their tent, let out a frightful cry and disappeared. The campsite was gripped with panic and soon transformed in the blink of an eye into a field of investigation. The investigation was taking shape quickly, and a few elements of interest surfaced. The cry of an infant, traces of a canine animal's steps next to the tent, and the shadow of a wild dog, which was seen by Lindy. From the first round of investigation and statements collected from the eyewitnesses, the evidence hinted at the baby being attacked and killed in its sleep by a dingo, a kind of wild dog resembling a fox which lives in packs in the desert plains of the country. The animal would have taken advantage of the absence of Lindy and seized the little girl, dragging her to his den. In front of the journalists and investigators, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain withdrew into grief but continued to cooperate and collaborate as best as they could. TV stations from across the country arrived to interview them, and they were quick to notice that for parents who had just lost their infant child, Lindy and Michael did not seem to look in bad shape. Where were the tears of this mother and the sorrow of this father? Lindy and Michael failed to see a cruel and unexpected turn of events coming their way, which plunged the entire family into an unprecedented legal battle that lasted nearly five years. The mysterious disappearance and death of the little girl, Azaria, is one of the most famous Australian news stories till date. Almost 40 years later, the dingo trial has not ceased to trigger excitement, fear and questions. Who was really behind the murder of the Chamberlain's baby? Was it the mother, father or the wild dog? Let's discover the truth together. For a start, a brief retrospective picture of Australia in the 80s is necessary. 
August 16, 1980. The Chamberlain family was getting ready to leave for a few days of vacation at a campsite in the north of the country called the Urulu Nature's Reserve. Since the birth of Azaria, the youngest of the family, nine weeks ago, the mother, Lindy, did not have a moment for herself. Not to mention the two little boys, Aiden, seven years old, and Regan, four years old, who were also under her care. Being a housewife has always been a full-time job. Yet, Lindy loved her role as a mom and did it perfectly. All the women around her would tell her so, and they all dreamt of being as relaxed as she was in front of the huge pile of housework, daily routine, and the little problems of children. Lindy's husband, Michael Chamberlain, was a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist church and was considered one of the best local religious figures. With the move, birth of the baby, and the upheaval tasks that entailed, Lindy and Michael wanted to get away from it all. The whole family needed a change. Lindy was the first one to propose an idea of camping in the wild. It was totally different from the amusement parks and other banal and noisy activities found easily and everywhere in the city. Where were they going to camp? An ideal location where nature is luxuriant and offers all the varieties of the rich Australian flora, an idyllic stay between mountains, bushes and the red-hot desert. A few days before their departure, the young mother returned home with a bundle of brochures from the place. The scenic pictures were beautiful and the site corresponded perfectly well to their idea of a family vacation. Not very expensive, but at the same time, enriching. Camping in the bush, frequented by middle-class families with young children, an all-inclusive formula. Facilities for everyone and excursions for all tastes and budgets including hiking, swimming in the river and climbing. Not to forget the vast desert plain of the outback overlooked by the majestic Ayers Rock, a mountain of red sandstone and revered by the Aborigines. They called it Uluru in their native language. Lindy Chamberlain was a slim, dark-haired, young woman of 32. Neither she nor her husband was Australian, but both were originally from New Zealand, the island down under that they had left a few years ago. They quickly adapted to their second country, despite the scorching temperatures and the long distances. Alice Lynn Murchison, known to everyone as Lindy, was born on March 4, 1948, in Wakatani, New Zealand. While preparing to go to university, she met her future husband, Michael Chamberlain, at the Seventh-day Adventist Church where they both attended. He was a pastor, whereas she and her family were devout churchgoers. The romance between the two young couple grew quickly and they got married in 1969. The couple then moved to Tasmania the following year where they stayed for five years and had their first son Aidan in 1973. They then decided to move to Australia for good and settled first in Brisbane in the Queensland region before moving to Mount Isa. Michael found a vacancy as a minister in the local chapel while Lindy was a housewife and devoted herself to raising her children. Their second son, Reagan, was born in 1976. The Chamberlains were well linked in their church community and were said to be a loving and respectable couple, deeply devoted to charity work. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, however, did not have many supporters in Australia and considered it more of a cult of a hysterical fanatics than a simple church. Since the birth of Azaria, the youngest of the family, on June 11, 1980, Lindy and Michael could finally breathe a sigh of relief, as since the beginning of their marriage, they wanted to have a girl. 
During the whole pregnancy, they had prayed for their wish to be granted. It was thus with an unprecedented joy that the family welcomed the birth of this little girl, all blonde and chubby. As soon as they arrived on the campsite in the afternoon of August 16, 1980, the Chamberlains quickly found their bearings. The place had a perfect family atmosphere and the people were also friendly. Night had not yet fallen when Lindy, her husband and children were invited to dine with the Lowe family who were also camping in the bivouac opposite theirs. The rule was very simple. Everyone brings their own food, a pack of beer and shares it with all. The Chamberlains, however, as practicing Protestants, did not touch alcohol, which they duly informed their new friends. Michael, who was a fervent reverend, never missed an opportunity to talk about the worship he had been leading for several years at the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Greg and Sandy Lowe, who were not believers, nevertheless listened to Michael's speech with goodwill. Lindy pointed out to her husband to set aside his preaching for the service of Sunday and to stop trying to rally everyone to his cause. The evening continued late in the night, with discussions of the following day's plan and excursions. Did you think of registering at the reception to have the climbing material? No, but we can always do it tomorrow. Little Azaria, who had fallen asleep in her mother's arms, was graciously complimented by all the people who had seen her. Finally, everyone decided to retire, as a long day was awaiting them, and it was imperative to be in proper shape to face the imposing mountain. The next day, August 17, 1980, the sun was already beating down hard during the first hours of the day. The small night breeze gave way to a torpor, which went on to mark the whole day. After breakfast, the latecomers went to recover the climbing equipment while the groups were organized between those who were going to make the ascent and those who were going to make the hike in the plains. Michael Chamberlain, who was tall, blonde, and athletic, used to be a journalist and a photographer. Today, even though he ran a church, his first two passions had never really left him. Whenever he went, he took with him a whole equipment composed of Kodak cameras, tripods, and meters of film. Capturing several pictures of his family was one of his favorite hobbies, especially since they were all photogenic. Since her birth, Azaria had become his new muse, his new favorite subject, and he spent his time photographing her from all different angles. Just as he was about to climb the imposing mountain, he wanted to immortalize the moment. A portrait of Lindy with Azaria taking small steps on the red sandstone floor. Lindy smiled radiantly to the camera under her fringe of brown hair. While the baby, dressed in a small white onesie, tried to stay upright for the photo held by the hands of her mother. The picture was perfect. Michael and his boys and Greg Lowe joined the first group of climbers while the woman stayed below to observe and gently mock them. Sally Lowe suggested to Lindy to have their own little exploration of a nearby cave called the Fertility Cave. When it was time for dinner, everyone returned exhausted and hungry from their long day of excursion. All voted unanimously, barbecue for everyone. Lindy took care to wash and change the baby and put her in bed before going to join the others around the campfire. The evening was cool after the heat wave of the day. The fauna was awake and they could hear all the sounds of nocturnal animals around them. There was still a small shadow in the picture. Dingoes had been roaming around the campsite since the arrival of the holiday makers and it was starting to worry them. In the morning, they inquired at the reception of the camp. Is it safe to sleep in spite of the presence of the pack of dingoes? 
Yes, it's safe. They are afraid of humans. You just have not to encourage them by throwing food at them. And that's all. Wendy was having trouble getting her baby to sleep. The heat of the day had tired her out. She wondered maybe she should take off her extra clothes. She might have been too hot. The little girl she had hoped and prayed for so much was constantly in her arms, only to separate from her at bedtime, often with regret. Now she was sleeping. Lindy could finally breathe. Accompanied by Reagan, she carried the baby into their biowack. Almost everyone had already settled down for dinner at the camp. The aromas of the different barbecues filled the air and packs of beers were taken out from the coolers. While Greg Lowe handed each one of them a can of beer, Lindy and Michael politely refused. Our faith forbids it, but go ahead, we don't mind. Although you should be careful with the consumption. Their camp neighbors gently teased them about it. The evening continued cheerfully, the adults had fun and chatted, while Reagan and Aiden began to show signs of fatigue. They were quite drowsy. Their mother offered to take them to sleep. The camp where the dinner tables and the tents were set up was separated by a small distance of grass. Suddenly, a shrill cry. A baby's cry. Everyone heard it clearly, and it came from the place where Azaria was sleeping. In panic, Lindy ran, worried to death, to the tent. She saw a shadow passing by and didn't realize until she saw a wild dog with pale yellow hair that ran away as soon as it saw her. Lindy had a bad feeling. She rushed inside. No more baby. No more Azaria. The baby was missing. She thought she was in the middle of a nightmare. She turned the sheets over repeatedly, the sleeping bags, the little pink mattress, nothing. No trace of the little girl. The wild dog, the dingo, had something in his mouth. A white cloth, perhaps the baby's dress. Lindy ran after him, completely out of her mind. But it was difficult to find her way in the dark. She screamed, yelled, and gathered the whole camp to her side. The woman tried to calm her down, while the men brought all the flashlights they could and went after the dog. The dingo took my baby! The dingo took my baby! This sentence, Lindy Chamberlain did not cease to repeat, like an invocation to all the people who approached her. A hunt was organized, in which more than 300 people armed with flashlights took part. In dense vegetation plunged in the darkness, it was very difficult to see anything. Some aborigines living in the surroundings were immediately intimated and they took the group to corners only known to them. The search lasted all night. One of the campers, Murray Habby, came across something very strange. A large impression in the sand, like some weight would have been dropped there. The dingo, exhausted by the weight it was carrying, might have dropped the baby down momentarily. The print was studied for a long time by one of the aborigines present, but it turned out that no trace of a canine paw was around it. The group did not return to the camp until early in the morning. They were empty-handed. No trace of Azaria, nor of the wild dog he had taken away. The police were informed by the campsite reception and had been on the scene for a good 15 minutes. Coroner Frank Morris, accompanied by Sergeant Michael Gilroy, scanned the area around the tent. Apart from the blood stains, they also found dog tracks, but as they went further, the tracks seemed to have disappeared. Yet there was no wind last night. The police then decided to search the place, search Chamberlain's car, ask questions to all the people who were present at the night before, and questioned the campground manager. Sally Lowe told them that a dingo had indeed followed her the night before to a dumpster. 
but did not seem aggressive. She said she threw a rock at it and it ran away. Lindy and Michael were in shock. They told the police officers Michael Gilroy and Frank Morris about the events of the previous day leading up to the incident. The investigators decided to pack up their notebooks and return to them when they were in a better state of mind. In the afternoon, the couple were appalled to come to terms with the situation when they were handed the death certificate of the baby for their signatures. The local television cameras relayed the news. The campsite was locked up while waiting for the experts and the Chamberlains were asked not to leave the premises until there was any news. They had the difficult task of telling their parents, choosing their words carefully so as not to offend them, and a doctor administered a strong sedative to both of them to help them sleep. The next day, the national channels took over. The switchboat operator of the campsite was bombarded by the repetitive phone calls from journalists who wanted to come and interview Lindy and her husband. They accepted. Their pale and drawn faces appeared for the first time on the TV channels. The couple tried hard not to break in front of the cameras. Pictures of them with their boys, missing baby's things, her bottles and slippers. The bivouac and all the equipment were captured. In less than 24 hours, the whole of Australia learned of the disappearance of baby Azaria, who was visibly carried away by a hungry and wild dingo. People wanted to share the sorrow of the parents, to send them messages of support and to make calls to comfort them. However, the people had to face a wall of ice. Not very demonstrative, the Chamberlains managed to neither to arouse the sympathy of the viewers nor to rally them to their cause. In pubs, cafes, homes, hair salons, Lindy's and Michael's faces hidden behind big dark sunglasses only generated a deep antipathy. The reason? For a couple who had just lost their nine-week-old baby, they didn't look sad enough, not upset enough. It took more than that to make people cry. The mother even seemed to bear it well and spoke about it with surprising detachment. As for the father, with his fiery tirades on the church, and the last judgment, he completed his statement only to be despised and hated. Michael Chamberlain shocked his countrymen with these following words. It is God who gave it to us. It is he who chose to take it back. We can only accept it. It is her destiny. This fatalistic, cold, measured resignation was far from touching the hearts and memorably shocked the mindsets. In the new Australia, full of social and economic development, Religion did not really have a place anymore. These words sound false. A hot reaction, punctuated with tears, would have been welcome and would have upset everyone. But the closed faces, framed by dark glasses, did not go down well with the public opinion. In the days that followed, at each of their television appearances, the Chamberlains were further shunned, decried and even mocked. From then on, they were called calculators, religious fanatics, Hallucinatory. A poor dog wanting to kill a child? What don't you hear these days? A week later, a camper by the name Wally Goodwin went to the place where the Chamberlain family had camped. Initially, the young man only wanted to take pictures of the vegetation and some wild flowers, and maybe some koalas with a little luck. As Wally Goodwin made his way through the bushes, he found himself in what appeared to be a dingo den. Curious, he moved forward, keeping his senses alert. Further down in the thicket, he thought he saw a piece of white cloth. In the campsite, he had already been told of the disappearance of a baby last week. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. His suppositions were quickly concretized. At the entrance of the den, he fell on the remains of a romper and a diaper. Without waiting a moment longer, Wally Goodwin ran to the campground to notify the reception, who in turn notified the police. The two investigators, Frank Morris and Michael Gilroy, returned to the trail. The Chamberlains, who had been home for three days, received a call. The police asked them to come to the campground right away, as new evidence had been recovered. Lindy immediately recognized the clothes Azaria was wearing on the day she had disappeared. The investigation now began, and other investigators joined in. One of them, Detective Graham Charlwood, decided to conduct his research with people who had seen the family before they left for camp. He even went to Azaria's pediatrician. The latter told him that during her last routine visit before the trip, Azaria was dressed entirely in black, something quite unusual for a female baby of that time for whom the color pink was considered more appropriate. The pediatrician did not fail to add another mysterious element. Azaria's name seemed unusual for a little girl to have when the trend was Jennifer, Wendy, Sally, and Jane. Graham Charlwood and Inspector Michael Gilroy did some etymological research on the name. What they discovered was going to puzzle them. It meant sacrificial in hostile terrain. Not very reassuring. However, the two police officers did not want to raise suspicions without any tangible evidence at hand. And they were interested in the religious background of the parents of the missing girl. Could the Seventh-day Adventist church, a new invention of the Protestant church, have something to do with the baby's death? They remembered how Michael Chamberlain seemed to touch in front of the television cameras while talking about his child, evoking a divine will more than anything else and his wife completely agreeing with him. Laboratories throughout Australia offered to share their expertise to assist in the research and to help the police. It was the early 1989s, and forensic science was still in its infancy. Apart from the laboratories, the various nature reserves and other zoological parks also offered their help. The particles of blood, hair, and saliva found in the remains of the baby's clothes were scrutinized. Dingo corpses were dissected to remove the slightest remnant of human bones. Zoologists observed the animal behavior of the different dingoes for days. This wild dog that populates the whole territory, living in packs, and preferring desert regions was the size of a fox, short with little hair, and often went out at night to hunt. Experts put forward the hypothesis 
that a wild dog, however formidable, would be unable to drag a baby weighing five kilos over a long distance. From that moment on, the investigation took a different turn. Azaria's parents, until now considered as poor victims, were now entangled in the cross lines of justice. Public opinion, which had not been too kind to them since the beginning of the events, added to the suspicion of the police. The Chamberlains did not know it yet, but in a short time, they were going to be judged for a premeditated murder of their baby. The spiral was now set in motion and they could not escape unscathed. The craziest and most incongruous rumors started to circulate on their account, faithfully reported by the newspapers. This fanatical couple, composed of the husband, a pastor, and the head of a church that looks like a cult, was going to put everyone on their backs. Azaria would not have died, killed and eaten by a dingo, but was indeed slaughtered by her own mother who wanted to offer her as a sacrifice to their crazy cult. A human sacrifice. The tabloid spoke unequivocally of satanic rituals mixing trances and ritual sacrifices of virgins and infants to renew the cycle, never seen before. The scientific side of the investigation gradually gave way to supernatural and morbid sensationalism. The police, in order to avoid any hasty accusations, decided to conduct a series of interviews with the two concerned. The interviews were conducted separately by two police officers, Michael Gilroy and Graham Shawwood. For hours, their interrogations were taped. Questions on the chronology of events from the period before the departure and after the disappearance were asked repeatedly to Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. In order to confuse them, the police rephrased the same questions in different ways, a method widely used in investigations to find out if the suspects is telling the truth or not. The attitude of Michael, and especially of Lindy, definitely convinced the investigators. She seemed to have forgotten details that she had already mentioned during her first interviews with the television cameras, such as the color of one of the rompers that Azaria was wearing the day of her disappearance. Her attitude was even more bizarre when in a moment of clarity, she looked at Michael Gilroy and his colleague. You want to blame our church? Make it responsible. Is that it? Let me tell you one thing. Our church had nothing to do with the disappearance of my baby. Do you know why God punished Saul? Do you even know the story of Saul and the witch of Endor? This monologue, full of a particular kind of mythic ideology, emphasized unsinking Lindy Chamberlain a little more. It was a question of investigation, facts, memories, details, and there she recalled passages of the Bible where it was a question of punishment, which and last judgment. Gilroy and Charlotte knew that they were no longer dealing with the enlightened woman they thought they were, but with an unscrupulous killer obeying the pagan precepts of a bygone faith. From now on, it was no longer the case of a carnivore's and hungry beast, but of another kind of predator on its feet, provided with spirit, speech, and wise. The judicial machine was triggered. In the wake of this, other investigations were carried out by other police forces, particularly the coroner of Alice Springs, Dennis Britt in Queensland, who was going to carry out his small investigation with some experts in forensic matter, studied the remains of Azaria's clothes under the microscope. The second independent investigation was not linked by the first investigators who were in charge of the case, namely Michael Gilroy and his men. The result was that the baby could have been abducted by a dingo, but that the latter was remotely controlled by a human. Indeed, 
the arrangement of the clothes found by Wally Goodwin in front of the den in Ayers Rock could only be possible by a human hand. No animal has the ability to arrange clothes like that. The coroner Britt concluded his investigation by saying that the Chamberlains were not involved in the death of their child and that the child had the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, a simple combination of unfortunate circumstances. Michael Gilroy and his team struggled to prove the opposite of the allegations made by Coroner Barrett. There was a silent conflict between the different police forces and the interventions were being carried out without prior authorization and done in a linear manner. These efforts, which were inappropriately managed and organized by police officers wanting to deal with the case alone, only complicated the investigation further. The atmosphere was almost apocalyptic. The Australians were on hot coals. The Chamberlain's case was in everyone's mouth. Australia was now divided into two distinct camps, those who supported the Chamberlain couple and were convinced of their innocence and those who were convinced of their involvement in the murder. The second camp was rallied by Michael Gilroy, Graham Charlwood, and their men. On September 19, 1981, one year after the events began, the Northern Territory police officers searched the Chamberlain's home. They managed to confiscate several of Azaria's clothes and even the family car for examination. A London detective by the name James Cameron made a second investigation of the remains of the baby's clothes. His conclusion was that no dingo could have caused her death. The tears on Azaria's clothes could have not been caused by canines, even if they were very sharp, but by a sharp object, in this case, a razor, a knife or scissors. In Chamberlain's car, they discovered the unexpected. Large traces of blood stains in the entire passage seat and part of the back seats. The latest discovery left almost no doubt and led the authorities to conduct a second investigation that they hoped will be the last of its kind. For the moment, do recall that the body of the baby had not yet been found. Coroner Jerry Galvin was in charge of the second investigation. Assisted by Queensland Court of Appeal lawyer Des Sturgis, the inquest took on a new focus on the blood evidence found in the car. A new sample taken from under the passenger seat indicated the blood traces were fetal blood. Brisbane Daily Post printed a headline in one of its articles about the case. First, a dingo investigation, now the blood investigation. One of the possible scenarios now was that Mrs. Chamberlain killed her daughter. On the evening of August 17, 1980, in the seat of her car, possibly slit her throat, carried her into the tent and returned for dinner with her family and Sally and Greg Lowe. Against all odds, Coroner Galvin issued a warrant for Lindy and Michael Chamberlain's arrest. They were arrested in their home. The young woman, a few months pregnant with a new child, let herself be escorted by the police without saying a word. Her husband had the same attitude. A week before their first hearing, the Queensland Court of Appeal was subject to numerous raids by journalists from all over the country, from Sydney, Brisbane, and also from Melbourne and Adelaide. Judge James Muirhead was in charge of the Chamberlain case and conducted the trial of the now sinister Ayers Rock Killers. A panel of people composed of both sexes were handpicked to form the jury that will be present during the hearings and render its verdict at the end of the trial. There were 12 members of the jury in all. The Chamberlains hired as their lawyer the barrister John Phillips, while James Cameron, the English forensic expert, was sent from London to attend the hearings. A journalist did not fail to point out that as soon as Lindy Chamberlain saw him enter the room with his briefcase, she said in a joking tone, 
Ah, so that's Cameron, the dingo expert. I didn't know there were Australian dingo experts living in London. The police officers who led the two investigations, namely Frank Morris, Michael Gilroy, Graham Charlwood, Dennis Barrett, the Alice Spring Corner, not forgetting the new investigator, Jerry Galvin, were all present and indeed to testify in turn following the chronology of the investigations in which they all took part in between 1980 and 1981. The audience opened in a stifling climate. The Chamberlain couple, sitting side by side, was the target of the flashes that came from the different cameras. The national television channels, notably Fox and ABC News, and also Channel 7 Queensland were present. They stormed the coach room before anyone else. From the beginning of the trial, we understand very quickly that the Chamberlain couple had already been convicted for the murder of the little girl, Lindy as the one who executed and Michael as the accomplice of the murder. From the beginning, the lawyer John Phillips understood that it would be difficult to prove the innocence of his clients and to convince the court and judge as obstinate as Muirhead, already persuaded of the guilt of the two spouses. Moreover, the lawyer of the opposing party opened his plea by underlining that the little Azaria died because someone cut her thorax in two. The involvement of the dingo was therefore relegated to oblivion. It was not his trial that is being held today, but that of a despicable mother coupled with the cold murderer. Beforehand, Lindy was subjected to a psychiatric expert which concluded that she was perfectly sane, did not suffer from any defect or mental illness, had never been subject to bipolarity or depressive episodes, not even the famous baby blues, typical of the postpartum period. In its momentum, the lawyer of the opposing party did not fail to support his claims by saying that the story of the dingo's attack was only a pretext to cover up a cruel and long-calculated murder. It was very difficult to undertake a trial of somebody without the presence of a corpse, without motive nor reason which would have led to the murder. What would have been the reason anyway? Lindy had wanted a little girl for a long time. Those who knew her spoke of a mother completely captivated by her newborn and very attentive to her needs. The low couple who were dining with the Chamberlains on the night of the incident were brought into the courtroom. The first to take the witness stand was Sally Lowe, followed by her husband Greg. Both did their best to exonerate Lindy. They evoked the absence of the latter when she left the little girl to sleep in the tent. She would have been absent not more than six minutes, a period much too short to do anything and especially not a murder of such a scale. Sally Lowe, who became fast friends with Lindy Chamberlain, said that her friend seemed very happy with the birth, that she was glowing like all new mothers. This sentimental approach only half convinced the jury. When asked by the prosecuting attorney what she had heard that night, Sally Lowe said that she had heard a baby's cry coming from the Chamberlain's tent, and Lindy heard it too and ran to the rescue. She also said that there were a lot of dingoes around and that on the morning of August 17th, 1980, one of them was looking at Azaria in a fierce way. Before dinner, she told how another one followed her to the camp's dumpster, which was located a bit further away. And that got scared as she threw a rock at him, which made him run away. Wallace, Wally Goodwin, the other camper who found Azaria's clothes next to the dingo's den the week after she disappeared, assured that the clothes were thrown here and there in a natural way like a dog would do with the bone after it had finished chewing on and no longer wanted it. If the testimony of Lowe and Wally Goodwin contributed a little touch to human eyes, the Chamberlain's, another camper, Amy Whitaker present that day, 
destroyed all by giving a version completely opposite. She spoke about Lindy and Michael in not very complimentary terms, not failing to underline that their resigned and not very involved attitude after the announcement of the disappearance of their baby and its more than probable death did not upset them more than that. The fatalistic and detached attitude evoked by Mr. Whitaker was the same one that the journalist who arrived on the scene that day after the disappearance did not fail to notice too. The mystical evocations of Michael Chamberlain talking quietly about God's will shocked them unanimously, not to mention his wife's rambling about biblical figures that she linked to the incident. When the various witnesses returned to their respective seats, the forensic expert took over in the box, Dr. Andrew Scott and expert James Cameron. Both of them testified with evidence, including the remains of Azaria's diaper and onesie, that these elements were shredded with a knife. The cuts were quite symmetrical and that animal fangs could have not given the same result. Not to mention that the latest blood tests taken from under the passenger seat of the Chamberlain's family car have shown that the blood belonged to a small child, or even a newborn as in the case of Azaria. After two hearings and jury deliberations, the Chamberlain's fate was finally sealed. Life imprisonment with hard labor for Lindy on the charges of murder and first-degree infanticide and five years in prison for Michael for participating in the murder as an accomplice. The verdict was greeted by a cloud of booze in the courtroom punctuated by Sally Lowe's sobs like her, her husband and few people who supported the Chamberlains. They naively believed that they were going to be acquitted. Following the reading of their verdict, the couple was taken separately to their respective prisons. Lindy to Berrima Female Prison in Darwin and her husband to Brisbane State Penitentiary. Their children, Aidan and Reagan, were entrusted to Lindy's parents. She made a first request for review, which was rejected. Pregnant with her fourth child at the time of her indictment, she gave birth to another baby girl named Kalia on November 17, 1982, in the maternity ward of the prison where she was serving her sentence. In 1986, nearly five years after the conviction of Lindy Chamberlain for the murder of her baby, a Scottish tourist on vacation in the Ayers Rock area fell to his death while attempting to climb the imposing mountain. The police who found his body also made another astonishing and unexpected discovery. A piece of baby clothing containing traces of blood partially burned, probably having belonged to Azaria. This piece of clothing was not previously included in the material of evidence of the investigation. Following this, the Chamberlain couple were completely acquitted. Lindy was released from prison in February 1986, followed by her husband a few days later. Second commission was formed to assist them in their new review trial, held in camera, which resulted in their complete acquittal two years later in 1988. The opposing side in the first trial never admitted that they were wrong and did not change their position towards the two accused, who are now exonerated. The evidence of the blood found in the car and thought to be Azarias was compared to the blood found on the new piece of clothing. It turned out that the two did not match. The red liquid found in the car was eventually attributed to a chemical substance probably spilled from a vehicle cleaning spray even if these last conclusions would be perceived as far-fetched by those who remain fully convinced of Lindy's guilt, the fact remains that the latest forensic tests, more advanced in terms of detection, had succeeded in proving the contrary. The blood of little Azaria was never found. 
when they were released from the prison, the Chamberlains were reunited with their two boys, Aidan and Regan, and their little sister, Kalia, born during her mother's incarceration, who was able to bring a little joy to a family torn apart by a legal battle that destroyed their reputation throughout the country. Unable to live this memory, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain divorced in 1991, and Lindy remarried the following year to Rick Creighton, who still shares her life. The disappearance of little Isaria Chamberlain remains to be one of the most famous and mysterious events in Australia. The Chamberlain couple, shunned from the beginning by the investigators and public opinion because of their stoic and undemonstrated attitude to the extent of the drama they experienced, only attracted the wrath of the majority of Australians. The investigations carried out individually, often in a botched way, by the various bodies of the police force destroyed the Chamberlain couple. Their very strong religious faith, decried by most, added a layer because many will remain persuaded that the reverend and his wife belonged in reality to a dangerous sect and that they voluntarily offered their baby in a child sacrifice rite. The hypothesis for a long time gave this story a supernatural side by making people believe that the Chamberlains were bloodthirsty killers guided by their gurus. In a society that believes a lot in what it sees in the media, the detached attitude of Lindy and Michael shocked instead of stirring pity. While everyone expected to see parents whining at every flash, at every turn of the camera, this lack of sentimentality quickly became suspicious. It was a long wait until June 12, 2012, when the assertion of the kidnapping of the small baby by a dingo was finally established. The story of Azaria and the trial of her parent was faithfully adapted on the big screen in 1989 by the film Evil Angels, A Cry in the Dark. But the actress Meryl Streep, casted for playing the role of Lindy Chamberlain and Sam Neill as that of her husband, a role which she enacted to perfection from the mimicry, the Australian accent, gestures, hairstyle and look of the latter. The dingo trial in spite of the renewal of investigation is still considered to this day as not elucidated largely because of the absence of the body of little Azaria. The Australians, contemporaries of the affair, remained very marked and still remember it as the most shaken and mediatized event of their country beyond its borders. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.